0: Good afternoon. Uh, Before I call the case, I'll note that Justice Designate Riggs um, is finishing up her work at the Court of Appeals today. And I anticipate that she will uh, take her oath this afternoon and uh, will watch the video of this argument and will participate uh, in this case. Uh, Our next case is State versus Jonas and we will hear from the appellant.
1: Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the Court. My name is Kristen Euchre. I'm a Special Deputy Attorney General with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, please. By pleading guilty, a defendant waives his right to trial. No evidence against him has admitted, and because of this, an unconditional guilty plea does not rest on the admissibility of any evidence. It rests on his confession of guilt, which relieves the state of the burden of introducing any evidence. Of course, a defendant can connect his guilty plea to the denial of his motion to suppress. All he must do is give notice of his intent to seek further review of that decision before he enters his guilty plea. This makes his guilty plea conditional on the continued admissibility of that evidence. Then, if the appellate court reverses the order denying the motion to suppress, the guilty plea necessarily falls. Our state constitution has vested this court with the exclusive power to create rules of appellate procedure, and that's exactly what Reynolds is. This court has said that previously in um, State v McBride, which this court affirmed uh, per curiam. It was a court of appeals opinion that was affirmed. And it specifically says that Reynolds is a rule of appellate procedure. Um, And what Reynolds says is precisely this, that the defendant must give notice of his intent to appeal the denial of his motion to suppress before he enters his plea. Um, It doesn't create any sort of rule that benefits the state. All it does is ensure that everyone, the court, the prosecutor, the defendant, everyone is clear that the defendant is pleading guilty um, only because his motion to suppress has been denied, that that was his defense to the charge and that that having been denied, he no longer has a defense that he wishes to to proceed to a trial on. Um, It allows the defendant to get the benefits of pleading guilty while maintaining his right to um, raise his constitutional challenges to that evidence. And as with uh, rules relating to preserving objections to evidence at trial Part of the function of this rule is to give the trial court um, An opportunity to avoid any error um, The court upon hearing the defendant intends to appeal the denial of his, his motion to suppress could do any number of things It could for example ensure that it has actually entered a written order on that motion it could um, transfer the plea to be heard by the judge who actually heard the motion to suppress, which uh, could have happened here. Um, the defendant in this case actually had his motion to suppress heard by a different judge than took his guilty plea. Um, and if the matter is in front of the judge who heard the motion to suppress, the judge could reconsider his ruling on that motion to suppress. All of those, um, those, those potential avenues there could obviate the need for an appeal. Uh,
2: Council, would you you agree that on its face, um, the the Reynolds' opinion seems to be concerned with preventing the state from being, uh, striking a bad bargain, and that that, let me just stop there.
1: Um, It does discuss that concept, Your Honor, um, certainly, and it, it, it does say that that would be unfair. Uh, that the state could be essentially somewhat hoodwinked into to giving up something, um, not knowing that defendant intended to appeal. But that's not truly what the case was about. The case is about resolving the tension between the consequence of a guilty plea, which is waiver of all defenses, um, and the, the right to appeal that the legislature has, has granted him
2: would you agree though that the the fairness concern that was discussed in Reynolds is not at issue here
1: no your honor I would not Um,
2: explain to me sure Why?
1: Um, it's not precisely the same in in the (laughs) sense that the state hasn't agreed to reduce or dismiss charges so in in that sense it is not precisely the same as what happened in Reynolds but um, it is still unfair to the state to, to, while it's sitting there, hearing the guilty plea being entered, the state is believing that this will resolve the guilt of the defendant. It perhaps leaves open the sentencing questions because he does maintain his right to to appeal whatever sentence is imposed, but the, the state uh, is expecting that this will be a final judgment with respect to whether it will be trying this case. Um,
3: with but why, why isn't the state always on notice of that by virtue of the statute
1: because the because this i think that this is unique in that the defendant has a way of knowing at the time that he's doing it that he intends to to appeal um whereas with other any other sort of problem he might not necessarily know like with the sentencing problem he can't possibly know if he's going to be appealing the sentence because he doesn't yet know the sentence um, it's just a question of making sure that everyone's cards are on the table and i think that it's it also gives the state the opportunity to bargain further for that finality if it is this st- it's obviously it's always going to be a case-by-case basis of what the state um, Values in that particular case, but the state's interest in finality might be such that it offers a plea agreement Knowing when it once it finds out that the defendant intends to seek review of that motion to suppress and the state might find uh, the finality so important that it would stop that open plea and Offer a negotiated plea that the defendant might accept which of course all of these are hypothetical type scenarios, but they're the sort of thing that is cut off when the state has no way of knowing what's happening in
3: advance. If I can just ask you about something you said when you started out. You said that Reynolds is a rule of appellate procedure. And so are, are you saying that this court's can, can issue rules of appellate procedure simply by the, through the opinions we issue and not through any, any, anything that's codified in what we call the rules of appellate procedure?
1: Yes, Your Honor, absolutely. Yes. Um it, the, the rules of appellate procedure as a as a codification have only existed since I believe the seventies and surely there were appellate rules before before that um, time.
3: But now that we have them, shouldn't we shouldn't practitioners be able to rely on them as, as what the rules of appellate procedure are? Sure.
1: I mean and they they can rely on them, but there's always the, the case law always informs the meaning of those rules and there are always exceptions in in the case law and i mean preservation rules are a good example just because you have a right to appeal from the judgment doesn't mean you necessarily have preserved your right to review of a particular issue and that's precisely what this is here this is a, a instance where he's essentially waiving his right to review of yeah. that issue by failing to give notice of intent uh, it's it's almost like the notice of intent is the objection that must be lodged at trial. Um, taking the same defendant and saying he's had the pretrial motion to suppress, uh, and then he goes to trial, he still has to make an objection when that evidence is admitted in order to preserve his his challenge, his constitutional challenge to that evidence.
4: But just following up on on that question, so you have in Rule 10 of the rules of appellate procedure pretty clear criteria of what you need to do in order to preserve something for appeal. And nothing in the Rule 10 would have precluded um, the appeal here because there was a ruling, you know, there was a motion to suppress and then you secured a ruling from the trial court. So Reynolds is like an additional procedural requirement outside the rules. And if, and granted, it's been a, a, you know, it's been precedent for a very long time, but it it seems reasonable for this court to feel like if we're going to have court created sort of hidden rules of procedure, we need to construe them narrowly. And Reynolds provided what seems to me to be a pretty clear reason to exist, which is to prevent gamesmanship during the plea bargaining process. And that expanding it beyond that really runs the risk that we're gonna have this just tidal wave of, you know, ineffective assistance claims and other things with lawyers that just aren't aware that there's rules of procedure that aren't in the rules of procedure.
1: Your Honor, I would push back on the assertion that it's a hidden rule. It's it's not any more hidden than any other of this court's um, decisions. And and it's not hidden in the sense that this court has actually enforced it against a defendant who pled guilty without a plea agreement before in State B-2. Um, That is a um, DWI case where the defendant pled just as he was charged and um, this court said cited the Reynolds rule and said it he has complied with Reynolds consequently he has preserved this issue for our review and so we will proceed now to the merits so it, it's not it's not at all something that is hidden I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, agree with that and it's you're right it is not in the the book of appellate rules that you can hold up and say, here are the appellate rules, but there are tons of rules that this court issues in in opinions and
3: are still nevertheless appellate rules. Um, well, and just to one final question on that point. In, in Reynolds, the court says he must give notice of his intention to the prosecutor and the court before plea negotiations are finalized. So. In that case, there's certainly nothing to suggest that if there are no, I mean, if this is the rule of a procedure, it's a rule of procedure that applies when there are plea negotiations, because it says you must give your notice before plea negotiations are finalized.
1: Your Honor, it, it does say that. Um, I think that the rule statement is really more at the end of the discussion on this issue where they, the opinion says, we therefore hold that when a defendant intends to appeal, he must give notice of his intention.
3: Um, Right. But that's what I was, exactly what I was reading.
1: Right. Uh, Before plea negotiations are finalized or he will waive the appeal of right provisions. I, I, I think that the time that plea negotiations are finalized is at the
3: moment that the plea is accepted. So, so then it's your view that there are plea negotiations in every case, um, Any time a defendant pleads guilty, there were plea negotiations? I, I think that I,
1: I that's a, a factual question, but I, I think that in almost every case there will be some sort of discussion between the prosecutor and the, the defense attorney about a potential plea agreement. Um, Obviously that's hard to know on appeal because those discussions usually don't occur on any sort of record.
5: Well, it, I'm sorry counsel, is it, is it hard to know on appeal? Doesn't a prosecutor have to uh, agree to enter a plea, allow a defendant to enter a plea?
1: Um, I'm not sure. Of-
5: if, if you could turn to page, or I would turn you to page 17 of the record, the plea transcript, certification by a prosecutor
6: Mm
1: mm-hmm the the thing that's giving me pause your honor is when defendant pleads as charged the the I'm sorry
5: well it's it's page 17 of the record a defendant can't just walk into superior court and plead guilty that's
1: absolutely right the 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 state does have um, calendar calendar sorry calendaring authority um, at a minimum Sorry, Your Honor, I'm looking at page 17 and what
6: was there? Page
5: 17, um, certification by the prosecutor at the very bottom. Prosecutor for this prosecutorial district, as a prosecutor, uh, I hereby certify that the conditions stated within this transcript, if any, are the terms and conditions agreed to by the defendant and his or her lawyer and myself for the entry of the plea by the defendant to the charges in this case.
1: Right, Your Honor. And I think, uh, to, some, to your point, Part of that, the question of just walking into court and pleading guilty, the state has an interest in being sure that those charges are the charges that the state wishes to pursue in that case against that defendant. So the defendant, in that sense, can't just, because one charge is levied against him, he can't just run into Superior Court and plead guilty to that without the state being able to do anything about that charging assessment, I guess. Um, And I, I think,
5: wouldn't a statement by a prosecutor that uh, uh, there is no plea in this case be a negotiation?
1: I think so, Your Honor. I think it, it, it means that there was no agreement. The, the, because there was no agreement reached, doesn't mean that there were no negotiations.
5: Uh, well, is, isn't the decision to plead guilty as charged an agreement, as, as certified by the prosecutor here?
1: yes I think so in in the sense that there could be other charges that the state has opted not to charge um, or other charges in a different county right or other charges in other counties or charges against um, accomplices or potential co-defendants that the state has agreed to forego Um, those are all things that could not be reflected in a in a written plea agreement like this um,
2: so just for clarification are, are you saying that the record shows that there were plea negotiations in this case
1: i think that the record doesn't show that there were no plea negotiations you cannot there's nowhere in the record to point to to say there were no plea negotiations um, which the court of appeals just kind of assumed based on the fact that there was no agreement reached
2: so what, what should we do with that the fact that there is nothing in the record that says there were no plea negotiations
1: um, I don't think that it matters your honor because I think that Reynolds is not does not depend on that fact the the rule in Reynolds does not depend on that fact It depends on resolving that tension between the complete waiver of any constitutional challenges that is a guilty plea and the limited right to appeal, the denial of the motion to suppress. And that tension exists regardless of whether there's any sort of plea agreement that has been reached with the state.
2: Are we, are we, um, so so this right to appeal is purely statutory? Yes, Your Honor. Right. Are, are we frustrating the intent of the legislature by adding this sort of or extending this Reynolds uh, notice requirement?
1: Not at all, Your Honor. And I don't think it's extending Reynolds at all. Reynolds says that this is the consequence of the guilty plea. Um, it it seems to sort of more, seems to buttress that conclusion by saying it would be unfair in this case because there was this um, concession that the state made uh, with respect to the charges, but Reynolds really is simply about how the defendant, what the defendant must do to preserve that right that has been granted to him by statute, which is not unique at all. This court has other rules about what defendants must do to preserve the, the statutory rights that have been granted to them by the legislature.
2: So if Ren- so, so Reynolds just, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think through this. Uh, So Reynolds says uh, that the defendant has to uh, inform the prosecution prior to the um, end of plea negotiations if the defendant intends to appeal the denial of a motion to suppress. So if Reynolds isn't meant to apply just in cases where there are negotiations, um, then where in Reynolds does it tell us? that uh, when the defendant's entitled, or required rather, to provide that notice when there are no plea negotiations.
1: Before conclusion of plea negotiations, which would be the time at which there, obviously there can be no more negotiation once a judgment has been, once the guilty plea's been accepted.
2: It it seems like this, the, the issue's been raised that, or the question's been raised, are there always plea negotiations and
1: I think there always could be. So like up until the moment that the guilty plea is accepted, negotiations could be reopened at any moment and in fact often are reopened, even upon it appearing that they were done.
0: In two, which has been our law since 1990, so I guess that'd be 33 years Uh, There were no technical, I'll call it, negotiations. It was a straight-up guilty plea, correct?
1: That's correct, Your Honor.
0: And the court itself noted that, uh, or or cited Reynolds, where it says uh, that the defendant must give notice of his intention to the prosecutor and to the court before plea negotiations are finalized. Otherwise, he will waive the right to appeal. And then it goes on to say, in this case, defendant did, in fact, specifically reserve his right to appeal upon entering his plea of guilty. Tell me what the court is saying there.
1: The court is saying that because he has followed Reynolds, he now gets review of the denial of his motion to suppress
0: is the court also saying that even though there may be no formal plea negotiations that plea negotiations are inherent in every guilty plea I'm
1: sorry I, I might have misunderstood that plea negotiations are or are not are, are inherent i think I think that is a fair reading of it, Your Honor, because I think that. I think that the moment the guilty plea is accepted, that is the time at which plea negotiations are finalized. Finalized meaning cannot be reopened, revisited. Um, until then, anyone could uh, reopen those plea negotiations, and so I think that I think that two is. Um, saying that yes, Reynolds applies, and that up until that moment of the guilty plea being accepted is the time that he has in which to give that notice. Um, I just wanna point out that The, by pleading guilty, the defendant has a very, very limited right to appeal, um, which is in 1444. Uh, It specifies he has a right to appeal. I believe it's four different types of sentencing problems. The denial of a a motion to withdraw his guilty plea or the denial of his motion to suppress. All of those things, excepting the motion to suppress, are sentencing issues. um, And obviously cannot be raised until after he's already pled guilty, um, the possibility that the state could be back retrying the case only arises when the defendant appeals from the denial of the motion to suppress. Those sentencing issues do not implicate the guilt um, finding. So it's a, it's a difference in kind, the appeal that the state would be preparing for uh, based on believing that the notice, the motion to suppress would be appealed or not. Um, And that is something that would, could very well affect the state's plea offers. Um, The state could, as I said earlier, um, decide that it wishes to bargain for a waiver of that right to appeal the motion to suppress, but it can't know that it needs to bargain for that if it doesn't believe the defendant intends to appeal.
2: But but why shouldn't the state make that standard operating procedure? I mean, it
1: could, certainly. But
2: wouldn't that solve the problem? Uh,
1: it, it I don't know if it would solve the problem, but it, it, it could, it is certainly one way that a, a prosecutor could deal with that, but it is, it's so my, it's strange to say that the defendant should be allowed to to keep that from the from the state
2: my, my concern is that we have you know this action by the legislature to create this right of appeal so obviously the legislature wants that right to exist and so I, i'm struggling with why we we wouldn't say that it's on it's incumbent on the state to obtain a, a waiver of that right if it has a concern?
1: It's because it's the defendant's right. The state has no ability to control it either way. The state has no way of knowing if he's gonna exercise the right. So why would the state bargain for something that it doesn't know he's going to exercise? Um, Certainly it could, but I don't think that um, that's required. I, and, and that sort of logic would extend to any anything that a defendant would have a right to appeal. And, and I don't know that the, the the mere creation of a right to appeal.
2: Well, there's a, a pretty limited set of things that a defendant has the right to appeal when there's a plea of guilty, that right. So it's a, it's a small universe. Yes. It, it doesn't seem like it would be a, an, an onerous burden on the state, but... If if it is, help me understand why that that is.
1: It's not onerous for the defendant to tell people that he intends to to appeal the denial of his motion. Um, That seems less onerous than the state uh, preemptively thinking about whether he's going to do it and if so, ask him to not in exchange for some sort of sentencing concession. Um, it's It's a simple rule that has been in existence since Reynolds in the 70s and the state, as the defendant has relied on you know, the, the constellation of, of rules, the state is also relying on the rules and the state believes that this is the rule. So if the defendant is not following the rule when the state is understandably believing that rule to apply, the state is being tricked essentially. The state is being Misled into what is going to be happening as a result of this guilty plea because he's supposed to give notice of appeal or notice of intent to appeal He hasn't done it. So that means he's not going to be doing it. So I don't need to worry about that
5: Council, I'm, I'm gonna ask your friend on the other side this question It, it sounds like uh, since Reynolds has been in existence since the 70s. There's an argument for legislative acquiescence
1: That's true as well your honor um, the legislature surely could have done, could have tried, I suppose, to do something about it. But I, again, I've, Reynolds is a rule of appellate procedure which is fully within this court's authority to create create or um, remove as it sees fit. Um, I'm into my rebuttal time, it appears. So I think I'm going to reserve the rest of that for rebuttal.
0: Thank you, counsel from the appellee
6: may it please the court my name is amanda zimmer i'm an assistant appellate defender and i represent the appellee daniel jonas in this case the court of appeals did not err in finding that Mr. Jonas did not have to give notice of his intent to appeal the denial of his motion to suppress just because he pled guilty and then decided to appeal. I'd like to take a step back and just talk about the statute for a minute because the statute is pretty clear and I would contend unambiguous. It says that after a plea of guilty, a defendant may appeal the denial of his motion to dismiss regardless of the fact that he pled guilty. The stated intent of the legislature was to allow a defendant who had no real defense besides the unlawful evidence claim that he made in the motion to suppress to appeal without having to go through a trial in order to reserve that right to appeal. That's what the legislature said it was trying to do here. The legislature did not say that Mr. Jonas had to enter a conditional guilty plea. It did not say that he had to tell the state that he intended to appeal. None of that is in 15A-979. This rule about notice of intent to appeal comes wholesale from State versus Reynolds in 1979, six years after the statute allowing a defendant the right to appeal was enacted. And here, as clear as counsel seems, for the state seems to think the Reynolds rule is, all these questions we're talking about show that this rule is not straightforward. It has not been applied consistently and it does cause confusion and burden a defendant's right to appeal which was granted by the legislature. Here, Mr. Jonas didn't have an agreement with the state. He, we don't know if there were plea negotiations. We don't know what happened before he walked into court and said he pled guilty to possession of methamphetamine. We do know there was a motion to suppress hearing and there was about a month that passed before he pled guilty. So we don't know if there were negotiations We we, we simply don't know, the record is silent on that point. And it sounds like counsel for the state is speculating and we would all be speculating about what happened in that interim. What we know on the record is that Mr. Jonas pled guilty and immediately said, I enter notice of appeal and intend to appeal the denial of my motion to suppress. The prosecutor was present, the judge was present when this was said, neither of them said, hey, wait a minute, we didn't know about that. Now I know, maybe, They wouldn't, wouldn't it have mattered maybe according to the state's argument that the plea was final at that point. But I would disagree. Certainly if I was surprised by something, I think I would stand up in court and say, Your Honor, I didn't know that that was, that the defendant intended to appeal. What we have here is a silent record. And I don't think we can presume anything from it.
5: Um, Counsel, I'm I'm sorry, and I wanna turn to uh, page 17 of the record. Yes. Um, the, The certification by the prosecutor, which is on all plea transcripts, Uh, Says essentially these are quote the terms and conditions agreed to by defendant and his or her lawyer and Myself for entry of the plea. Why is not that not evidence in the record that there was? uh, An offer of some sort an acceptance and an agreement as mutual assent
6: Well in this particular case I don't think it shows anything because the plea agreement section of that page is blank so all that this shows is that there was nothing agreed upon
5: right well this this says uh the terms and conditions agreed to um conditions stated within this transcript if any are the terms and conditions agreed to what does what does that mean to you
6: i mean to me this is simply reflective that the prosecutor is saying this is in fact the plea that was agreed to by the parties and here there was nothing agreed to by the parties But I think that's all the certification is. I don't think it's a statement by the prosecutor that in fact plea negotiations had occurred and this was the result of those plea negotiations.
5: So how can you have something that was agreed to by the parties that was not, I believe you said not agreed to by the parties?
6: Admittedly that was poor wording on my part. I I, I don't think that this reflects that an offer was made and accepted in the sense that we normally think about plea bargaining because we normally think about plea bargaining as somebody giving something up or an agreement being made as to a charge or a sentence. And that's just not present here. So I think this at best reflects a lack of agreement.
5: So so we should ignore that language.
6: I'm not saying that we should ignore that language. I think it is accurate that the prosecutor is saying this is what just happened in court.
5: Well, this is before, right? This happens before the entry of the plea.
6: As a typ- matter typ- of practice, I don't know.
5: Typical <laughs> practice is uh, defendant signs uh, this, prosecutor calls the case, says, Your Honor, we have a plea in this case. May I approach with the plea transcript? And then the court has to go through all of this with uh, with the defendant. Right. So this all happens prior to uh, acceptance of the plea by the court or entry of the plea by the court. Right. So, so the, the at least according to the wording here, uh, prior to being submitted to the court, the, the defendant, the defendant's attorney, and the prosecutor certify that this is what was agreed to by the by everyone involved. Right. And they certify that to the court. So what do we make of that?
6: I make of it that they agreed that there was no agreement. I, I realize that sounds odd, but there is no agreement. They did not, the state did not reduce the charges. They didn't agree upon a sentence. The judge had full discretion at sentencing. There was no agreement. There was no agreement that Mr. Jonas wouldn't plead guilty there were, or wouldn't appeal. There was simply no agreement. And, and are we, oh, I'm sorry.
3: Are we able to credit what it says at the top of page 17 in this form, number 20, have you agreed to plead guilty as part of a plea arrangement? And the answer is no. Is, is it, what does that tell us?
6: I, I agree, again, think that shows that he agreed to plead guilty with no plea agreement. There's no plea arrangement here. Getting
4: back, to the li- Getting back to the language in Reynolds, uh, we've talked about the part where the court emphasized that it was this had to happen before pl- the plea negotiations are finalized, but there's this other language where the court goes on to say that, you know, distinguishing um, the Lefkowitz case and then saying um, it's not like this case, one which would cause the state to be trapped into agreeing to a plea bargain in a case as gruesome as this and then have the defendant contest that bargain. And the thing about this case is isn't um, what your client is pleading guilty to is exactly what he was, the state had charged him with. There was nothing more the state could have gotten than what happened, which is the plea agreement. So it seems to be quite different than what the Reynolds court was imagining, which is something where the state is giving something up in order to get the plea and then surprised to learn they may not actually get anything out of this because if you went on appeal, it unwinds it. What, what's your response to that?
6: My response to that is that um, the facts in Reynolds were very bad. Um, That was a case involving the first degree murder of an 86 year old woman and I believe a burglary and another felony charge and the state agreed to accept a plea to second degree murder. So they gave up quite a lot Um, and then the defendant appealed and they said they didn't know about it. And the trial court said, you don't get to appeal. You didn't tell us you were going to do this. And then it made it up to this court. And regardless of the state's argument in its brief, I do believe Reynolds was driven by fairness. And that's reflected in the bad facts of that case coming out with this rule that you can't just trap the state into a plea bargain. But we don't have Mr. Jonas trapping the state into any plea bargain. The state didn't give up the chance to get a conviction for the charged offense. It didn't give up the chance to argue for the sentence it thought Mr. Jonas deserved. It didn't give up anything. Um, I, I would say that this idea of finality that the state argues is the fairness interest here is, is not compelling under this case.
2: What, what are we to make of two then?
6: Two, um, I would make of two that it is, it talks about the case before it. And in that case, the defendant specifically reserved their right it didn't say that all defendants have to specifically reserve their right in the transcript of plea in order to preserve their right to appeal. So,
1: well,
0: it does say consequently the path has been paved for us now to address the substantive issue presented which seems to say had it not been specifically reserved the path would not be paved, correct?
6: Right. but I think this is where there's some tension in these cases where Reynolds is talking about you have to give notice. Two is talking about reserving your rights. This is just causing a little bit of confusion that doesn't need to exist under our rules of appellate procedure and under the wording of the statute. The plea does not have to be conditional under the wording of the statute. And two, that's the procedure all parties agreed to at the trial level and that's what came up to this court for consideration. I don't think that two means you have to do it that way in every case. I don't think Reynolds tells us exactly what we have to do in every case because of the the ambiguity in the language of when plea negotiations are finalized.
0: If if that were true, why would the court have included this language at all? It could simply have said since uh, there was a guilty plea without condition, uh, there was no need for giving of notice. The court didn't do that. Why?
6: Well, I think this is following Reynolds. So, and this so is the
0: if we, for us to rule in your favor, do we need to overrule Reynolds?
6: No, I don't think you need to. I think this case is distinguishable from Reynolds. Do because we of the overrule fa- two? I'm sorry?
0: Do we overrule two?
6: Again, I don't think the facts of this case are the same as the facts of two, and I don't think you have to overrule those
0: cases. Distinguish two for, for me.
6: Well, what we have in two is simply a different factual scenario in which the defendant said at some point, and I don't have the documents from that case to look back at them and see how exactly it was done, but at some point the defendant said she reserved her right to appeal. And I don't know how exactly that was done. The way it reads to me is that it was done in the plea transcript. I don't know that to be true. That's just kind of how it reads to me, and that's what the court was addressing. Here what we have is a plea agreement that just says nothing. It says nothing, and then Mr. Jonas immediately entered notice of appeal and said he intended to appeal. That's what we have here.
0: You say immediately, but it was after the sentence was rendered, correct?
6: Right, and under the statute, Mr. Jonas has to appeal from the judgment after the guilty plea in order to appeal the denial of his motion to suppress. So he, as soon as he could appeal, he did.
0: Well, it seems to me that the court is lauding the fact and actually requiring the fact that a defendant specifically reserved his right to appeal upon entering his plea of guilty. Why is that not our precedent?
6: I agree that two says what it says. And under those facts, that was the rule that this court was considering. Under these facts, I don't think that two is identical. I think under these facts, Mr. Jonas pled guilty as charged and didn't have a plea agreement. There was nothing said on the record about his right to appeal the denial of his motion to suppress. He immediately appealed the denial of his motion to suppress. Again, the prosecutor didn't say I didn't know about that. The court didn't say I didn't know about that. Everybody proceeded as if Mr. Jonas gave proper notice of appeal and notice of intent that he would do so. And in this case, it makes perfect sense that Mr. Jonas would want to appeal. That was his defense in this case. Why else would he plead guilty except for to forego a trial and keep that right to appeal, to keep that issue alive? And I think that's what the legislature intended was to allow defendants to plead guilty go forward with their appeals. If the state wants a defendant to um, waive this right, they certainly can bargain for that and include it in the plea transcript. If the state was under the impression the agreement was that Mr. Jonas was not going to appeal, it could have wrote that in the blank spot. It's not there.
4: Counsel, well, couldn't we? Go ahead. Go, ahead. go ahead. Couldn't one also read too and say, by, dis- by using that consequently, language and saying that what the court was saying is if there is some category of, um, of of pleas that don't fall under Reynolds there's no need to worry about that here because we have a procedure under Reynolds and it was followed in this case so consequently we certainly have the ability to hear this case procedurally leave for another day the question of what happens to someone which is not what happened to who did not do that and then tries to appeal under the statute
6: Yes, Your Honor. I, I think you can read, two that way, and I do think this is a different procedure and different facts than, too. Uh, Madam, I have a question. Uh, you've mentioned legislative intent several times. Uh, what is... Where, point to where you... I think logically, and I believe I may have read uh, some commentary about it, but has the legislature set forth that in any kind of proclamation ahead of time or... It- Did you point me to that? Yes. If you go to the official commentary to the statute, it is contained in that. So it's in the official commentary? It is in the official commentary. Thank you. Yes.
2: What about a a point that uh, Justice, I think Justice Berger made earlier, uh, legislative acquiescence? Um, uh, Reynolds, I think, was decided in uh, 1979. Uh, Chu was, what, 90. 1990 something like that um the legislature has let that hasn't expressed any displeasure that I'm aware of um with with those decisions so what what do we make of that in your view
6: First, I would contend that legislative acquiescence hasn't been argued by the state and I haven't had the opportunity to respond to their argument. I'm happy to respond to it and that is to say basically the statute here is unambiguous. Legislative acquiescence comes into play when there's an ambiguity in the statute and there's not here. The ambiguity says a defendant can enter a guilty plea and can appeal. There isn't any kind of acquiescence that's happening with their language in that sense. I don't know what they could change in the statute except for to say Reynolds is wrong. Um, so I don't think legislative acquiescence comes into play here, because I don't believe this language of our statute is unambiguous. And before I move on completely, I I do wanna talk briefly about the state's art. Council,
5: I'm sorry, I know you wanna move on, but I, I just wanna make sure I you You're saying that the statute is unambiguous but you, in responding to the Chief Justice, you, you indicated that Reynolds and 2 should not be overruled. How, how do we square those?
6: Your Honor, I'm not saying Reynolds and 2 should not be overruled. I said you do not need to overrule them to address this case. Okay, so, Because I think they're factually distinguishable.
5: So, uh, I, I apologize then. Are, should we overrule uh, Reynolds and 2 in light of what you contend is the plain language of, of the statute?
6: Yes, Your Honor, I think you should.
5: And, and. Okay, thank you.
6: So going to the state's other argument about um, the tension in a guilty plea and the waiver of antecedent constitutional issues, I I think to start with, I don't think Reynolds resolves that issue. I think the state reads more into Reynolds than is there. And I also don't think that that a guilty plea waives all antecedent constitutional issues. And I think we've seen that progression from the United States Supreme Court and the trilogy starting with Brady going through Charlotte, ending with, not ending with, but continuing through um, Black and Ridge and um, even Lefkowitz. I think those cases say there are some issues that are waived, but in a later case our Supreme, the United States Supreme Court made clear that those cases were not about waiver of antecedent constitutional issues. Those cases were about the validity of the guilty plea itself to support the conviction. So this tension that the state is talking about with the waiver of antecedent constitutional rights, I just don't think is addressed in Reynolds. Reynolds does acknowledge those cases exist, but it ultimately doesn't rely on that as a reason for its decision. And here, we have a statute that allows for an appeal that the only logical outcome of is that the appeal has to have some meaning. So if the trial court's ruling is reversed, then a new trial shouldn't have that evidence, just like as if the defendant had gone to trial and then appealed. So I don't think that this argument about antecedent constitutional error being waived by the guilty plea really holds up when you look at what the legislative intent was and, as a practical matter, how this would work. It's just It doesn't seem to have any, if the state's argument is true, there would be no purpose to the statute. And by pleading guilty and appealing, the defendant has continued to fight this battle and to show that they still feel that that evidence was not admissible. Um, The other thing I wanted to briefly touch on is the idea that this is a rule of appellate procedure. And this is again where I think Reynolds has caused some confusion in that it says waives the statutory right. I realize State versus McBride from the Court of Appeals says that under 15A 7 or 979 um, the right to appeal is conditional, not absolute. But the effect of the Reynolds rule is to create a prerequisite to the exercise of the statutory right that the legislature didn't create. And this court, while it can create rules of appellate procedure, we know it cannot create rules to restrict jurisdiction of the appellate courts. And here, in this case, the Court of Appeals looked at this as a jurisdictional requirement. This wasn't an issue of whether or not Mr. Um, Jonas preserved this at trial later it looked at it as a question they had to answer before they could even address the merits. So this is not a rule of appellate procedure in the same sense as um, Rule 10, for example, but it's more along the lines of Rule 4, which this court has has treated as jurisdictional, which is giving of notice of appeal, which everybody, I think, agrees is required for jurisdiction. This rule of Reynolds seems to be interpreted by the Court of Appeals and was here as jurisdictional, and the Reynolds Rule is restricting the jurisdiction of the court in that way. Um, And in the Court of Appeals, I don't think the state really contended that it wasn't being treated as a jurisdictional rule. I mean, even in the opinion, it's very clearly considered as jurisdictional, and I don't think that Reynolds can restrict the jurisdiction of the lower court. Um, The state, has argued um, that these other issues related to the right to appeal after a guilty plea only come up at sentencing and that uh, that they're different in kind and so they shouldn't have to, a defendant doesn't have to give notice of intent because they don't know what the sentence will be. Um, but in some cases, that's not the case. The issue could be whether or not the defendant agrees with the prior record level or um, and they might know that beforehand, but we don't have this same rule because we're waiting on the judge to make a ruling. And I understand it's a little different, but as the state pointed out in their brief in state versus RICO, if a defendant agrees to a charge and agrees to a sentence and then appeals that sentence, the entire plea has to be undone. So the outcome of an appeal of a sentencing issue isn't always a new sentencing. It could also be a new trial. this idea of finality in a guilty plea, yes, most pleas are final, but there are these six categories that can result in an appeal that the state is aware of and knows there's a chance a case could come back. So I think under those circumstances, we haven't added any burden to the defendant's right, but that consequences can be the same. Um, And unless there's further questions, I'll just briefly wrap up and ask that this court um, find that under the circumstances of this case in which there was no plea agreement, that it affirm the ruling of the Court of Appeals that um, the Reynolds rule was inapplicable to Mr. Jonas's case. Thank you.
0: Thank you, counsel.
1: This case is not one of statutory construction. Reynolds has already done whatever statutory construction was necessary. This case is about the applicability of Reynolds. That's the the issue that the state included in its PDR and that is the sole issue that this court granted review on. Defendant didn't include any additional issues in uh, his response to the state's PDR and in fact in his response argued only that Reynolds was inapplicable to his case. Um, It didn't uh, request overruling of any cases, and and as I sit here, I counted Caldwell, Reynolds, Two, and McBride as all being cases that defendant is saying are wrong um, and that this court should overrule Caldwell to the extent that it says um, the antecedent um, constitutional violations are waived by a guilty plea. Reynolds, for obvious reasons, Two, for the reasons that we've already discussed, and McBride um, for its statement about Notice of Intent to Appeal not being jurisdictional. Um, McBride specifically says that Notice of Intent to Appeal is entirely different from the Notice of Appeal, which the Notice of Appeal is the jurisdictional um, uh, the jurisdictional act, the thing that invokes the, the appellate court's jurisdiction. Um, McBride is also important here because it's talking about, McBride is the case that tells you what is sufficient For satisfying the Reynolds rule. Um, McBride said that what happened there was insufficient which was that the defendant had filed a notice in the the court file and there was no evidence that the state or the the trial court had ever been informed of that notice of intent Um, uh, which is important here because of defendants somewhat his suggestion that he might have actually complied with Reynolds. Um, McBride says he hasn't. Um, Additionally McBride is the case that tells you what is sufficient to comply with Reynolds, not to. Two is telling you that because he complied with Reynolds, he has successfully reserved his right to appeal. Um, this case is about whether this court is going to allow the Court of Appeals to create exceptions to this court's rules when that is the sole province of this court um, and the state, contends that the Court of Appeals has erred in finding uh, that this was a jurisdictional problem. McBride says it was not, uh, finding that it's inapplicable. uh, Two says that it is. And um, the state just asks this court to uh, reverse the decision of the Court of Appeals vacating defendant's conviction. Thank
0: you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you for both. Mr. Clerk.